You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. A few days ago, I mentioned to my friend that I was working on an episode about local sports history. My friend immediately launched into a story about how one of his co-workers was such a devoted Raiders fan that he'd wear a condom catheter to games so he'd never have to miss a play uh, getting stuck in line at the bathroom. Apparently this guy was also a big beer drinker. And so, yeah, you get the picture. He loved the Raiders so much that he was willing to pee in a bag for them. A bag attached to his body. Now, I don't know if that story is true or not, but I don't not believe it. You know what I mean? Oakland fans are known for being, shall we say, extremely devoted. And that devotion is, of course, what makes everything that's happened over the past few years even more painful. Losing the Raiders, losing the Warriors, the uncertainty over the future of the A's. So I thought for today's episode, we'd turn back the clock to happier times in local sports history. And I couldn't think of a better person to guide us through this highlight reel than Mr. Paul Brecky Meisner. Paul's family has been here for about a century, and he grew up playing ball in Eastmont, back when the old Chevrolet plant was still an anchor of that working class community. Paul started writing about sports while he was at Castlemont High in the 1950s, and he covered sports for the Berkeley Gazette and the Oakland Tribune in later decades. More recently, he wrote a book called Home Field Advantage, The City That Changed Sports. And this book, it's not just about Oakland sports history in general. It's about some of the greatest athletes who were raised here, and specifically, their connection to this place. Another cool aspect of this book is that It's not just about what made these stars great on the field, but it also explores how so many Oakland athletes have used their visibility to call attention to social struggles long before Colin Kaepernick famously took a knee in support of Black Lives Matter. So stretch those hamstrings because we're about to run through more than a century of sports history right now on East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. You've got kind of an interesting story about why you decided to write this book in the first place. Can you tell me about the origins, your your inspiration for putting this collection together? Well, it's a, it's a long, circuitous route in that story, but um, I'll give you the short version. And as a kid, you know, I, I collected baseball cards and always played ball my whole life. For many years, is why I existed, I think, is to play, to play ball. But as I was covering sports in high school and then junior college, you know, I, I had a lot of relationships with newspaper reporters, photographers, and so on. And through the stories they told, I started to slowly piece together what seemed to me like an incredible and very unique sports history in my hometown of Oakland. And so I started um, digging deeper. At the Tribune, I started going through the uh, photo files and looking through the old clippings, and it just kind of became a hobby. And, you know, I would throw the pictures or the clippings or other sports memorabilia that I started collecting. I'd throw them in a cardboard box in my closet and life went on and uh, I had two sons my wife and I had two sons and they started playing ball and collecting baseball cards and you know same routine that I followed as a kid and then they got to Oakland Tech High School they were both athletes and one day I was standing with them and some of their teammates at one of Oakland's baseball meccas Bushrod Park waiting for practice to start. We were chit-chatting, and I, I looked at it on the field, and I, I said, you know, you guys are playing on hallowed baseball ground. And they looked at me quizzically and asked me what I was talking about. So I rattled off the names of about 15 players who had 
cut their teeth playing at Bushrod Park, several of them Hall of Famers. And I was surprised that they only heard of one player that I mentioned, Ricky Henderson, who had just recently retired from the game. So I decided that day that I was going to go find that old cardboard box in the closet, dust it off, pull out all my memorabilia, and I was going to write a book on the history of sports in Oakland because I felt these young men needed to understand that history. Yeah. What do you think is important about sports history? Why is it worth knowing? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Well, we live in a competitive society. We've always we've always had competitions of one sort of another. You know, the gladiators in Roman times, the the knights and their jousting, uh, bullfights. I mean, we're talking thousands of years back. So. Sports is one way to measure our competitive, you know, spirit, uh, accomplishments. Uh, and I'd also have to say that there are so many important life skills that are learned through sports. Teamwork, setting goals, how to win and lose. Those kinds of skills that are you can a- apply to any walk of life. So it's really critical that you know, we learn those kind of life skills, and sports has always been a very critical medium. And besides, when our family gets together, aunts and uncles that I don't see very often, I don't know what else we talk about but sports. It's about the only thing that we can, we don't, I don't try to talk too much politics with some of my relatives, but we can always talk about sports. So it's a, it's a common language you know, in our society. That is a damn good answer. I think you covered some covered all the bases there, so to speak. Um, so before we get into some of the specific athletes that you cover in the book, I want to talk about a theory that you lay out in the beginning of the book, which is why there have been so many great pro athletes and Hall of Famers and superstars that have emerged from Oakland. Um, tell me about that. What is your read on why this relatively small city has produced so many sports legends? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, what it recalls for me is a, a comment that uh, John Brody made, the uh, most valuable player in the National Football League back in 1970, I believe it was, and uh, Oakland Tech high kid who went on becoming All-American at Stanford and then All-Pro with the 49ers. And I interviewed him back in 1983, and he he said to me, all I ever wanted to be was an athlete, and my dad found Oakland. Thank God. He said it was a great place to grow up. I'm so glad I I grew up in Oakland. And we had this incredible conversations where we ended up not talking that much about sports. We we talked about, he brought up the transportation system in in Oakland where he could jump on a streetcar for a nickel and go anywhere in Oakland to find a pickup game of basketball or baseball, football. He's talking about the key system, huh? Yeah, yeah. And he talked about, you know, the park and rec programs and the great coaches he had and the competition. And and uh, let me delve a little deeper into that because I think it's meaningful. You ask why Oakland. And I really tried to understand that because I, I did too. Scratch my head trying to figure out why a fairly small city like Oakland could produce so many, not only great athletes, but ones that broke down barriers, established milestones in the world of sports. First thing that came off the lips of many of the athletes and coaches that I interviewed was the weather. Uh, Oakland's been described as a city with the best weather in the United States. I mean, you literally could play sports year-round, and we did. And so more you play ball, the better you get. Um, the other uh, issue, I think, when you look, I mean, there's so many reasons, but one of the, another major reason was the Transcontinental Railroad. It was it's been described as the probably the the biggest engineering accomplishment of the 19th century and united a country. Well, as you can imagine, lots of cities and locales wanted to be the western terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad because they realized this is going to mean industry, population growth. It's going to mean wealth for our community. Mm -hmm. Well, 
by Hookerberg Crook, and that's another story, Oakland became the western terminus. And through that, it became this major industrial giant for the western United States. And of course, people came to fill those jobs in those industries. You know, the port developed, the railroad yards, foundries, canneries, you name it. Oakland had it, and its population mushroomed almost overnight. Um, so that was that was another significant reason. There was one last one that I would have to point to that might have been more important than any of the others, and that was the development of Oakland's park and recreation system. It was an incredible accomplishment, and uh, and that kind of dates back to the. Um administration of Mayor Frank Mott, and he was kind of promoting something that was known at the time as the City Beautiful Movement, right? Can you tell me a little bit about That's that? Right. Yeah, it was a City Beautiful Movement accentuated building beautiful buildings, planting trees, developing parks, right. and... Uh, the theory was kind of like, if you build a beautiful city, it'll create beautiful people, right? right. This is around like 1907 or so. Yeah, beauty will come. Yeah. Yeah, so it was around... So Frank, Mayor Frank Mott, he convinced voters in Oakland to pass $8 million worth of bond measures. And uh, that was a hell of a lot of money back then. And with that funding, he began to develop, among other things, an incredible park system, starting with Bushrod Park. That was the first. Then came Defermery, Lakeside Park, Bayview, which is now... Ramondi Park in West Oakland. And over his tenure, I think we, and beyond, uh, Oakland uh, developed about 112 recreation areas, parks, swimming pools, basketball courts, baseball fields, tennis courts, recreation centers. In fact, it wasn't long before Oakland became known nationwide as this amazing park and recreation city. But Frank Mott didn't stop with developing parks and recreation areas. He came up with a unique idea of partnering with the Oakland School District to use all the playgrounds that were being built throughout Oakland as places where youth could exercise, recreate, part of that city beautiful movement. So the what, what he came up with was the idea that after school and on weekends, playgrounds would be open on the school sites and uh, the city would hire recreation directors, male and female, to staff every single elementary school throughout the entire city. And all those clusters of elementary schools in the different areas of Oakland would be anchored by a major recreation center. And so what what you had, I compare it to a, a minor league baseball system where you have, when a kid signs out of high school, you, you either go to class A, double A, triple A, and each of those levels, you learn to improve your skills, the competition gets better, and if you're fortunate and good enough, you graduate graduate ultimately to the major leagues. Well, that's what we had in Oakland. You started on the elementary playgrounds. I remember when I was a kid, I, I proudly wore my Burbank gold and uh, yellow jersey and, and participated in the after-school recreation teams. Yeah. We would play neighboring schools. Mm -hmm. After school, we'd put on our uniforms and we'd walk half a mile, mile, two miles to the next neighboring school, Parker, Markham, Burkhalter, Sherman, and we played their teams. Yeah. And so there was this, for, for most kids in Oakland, that was their first experience with coaching and organized competitive sports. That's where it started. And I think it's worth noting how big of a change this was in Oakland. Uh, people in you know the modern era might take it for granted that kids can have after-school activities, for example. But your description of 
what Frank Mott ushered in in the early 1900s is making me think back to some of the early Jack London stories that I've read. He was growing up in Oakland about a generation before that. Yeah. Uh, poor, dropped out of school, went to work in a factory, like shoveling coal, and uh, ended up becoming basically a hooligan for lack of uh, options in lack terms of, of what to do. Resources. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So as I was saying, so when you graduated from elementary school, you went on to junior high. And you had the physical education teachers from the school district. They would be paid after school by the city to organize competitive sports at the junior high level. So you had that continued competition. Again, it got more competitive as you went up the educational ladder. Mm -hmm. And after junior high, we graduated high school in the Oakland Athletic League. Mm -hmm. So there was this incredible system. I mean, it was well-organized. And most of the recreation directors you had on the playgrounds were more or less athletes from junior college and college working after school um, on the playgrounds and on Saturdays. And then during the summer, you'd work full-time six days a week on those, those playgrounds and on those ball fields. So we had those kind of resources yeah. available to us. And that... That was in Oakland from 1907, 8, 9, 10, all the way till about, you know, 1978 when Prop 13 really cut the legs out yeah. of funding for parks and recreation, really suffered greatly. But we, we had those kind of resources there. You know, you couldn't drive by any playground or field in Oakland and it wasn't, that it, was, that it, was, it was packed. Yeah. Packed with kids playing one sport or another. Or there was other activities and crafts and dance classes, music classes. It was an amazing system. And I, right. I can remember I later became a recreation director at mm -hmm. my old school, Burbank, and coaching kids against those same schools that I played against as a kid. And it was amazing. I remember all the suits that would visit our playground men and women in their suits who were being led around by our <clears throat> superintendent of recreation showing off Oakland's park and rec system. It was right. it was nationally known. Well, you know, that's what I was going to mention, that this wasn't just a pipeline for young athletes, but it was also sort of a political pipeline for civic leaders in Oakland. You mentioned that there was a dance department in the park district, rec, you know, parks and rec department. I know Ruth Beckford famously taught young women, uh, I think it was like in the 40s and 50s, and later went on to become a you know pioneer of modern dance, and then later helped co-found the Black Panthers uh, free yeah. breakfast program. That's, and That's he, the caliber of people. Right. Or even, uh, I think Oakland's first black city council member started in the Parks and Rec Department. His name is escaping me right now. I interviewed his daughter a couple years ago. Mm. Uh, just jumping in real quick to mention that his name was Josh Rose. And if you want to hear more about Mr. Josh Rose's rise from the playgrounds of Oakland to becoming our first black city council member in 1964, you can find his story on the Black Liberation Walking Tour I'll put a link to that in the show notes on my website. You know, again, and then he went on to mentor a whole generation of young men uh, who went on to become leaders in the city of Oakland. And Ruth Beckford and Bill Patterson yeah. and uh, George Poles and Al Kite. And you, you just go down the list of the great coaches in Oakland and almost every single one of them interfaced with a park or as a recreation director. Um, in Oakland. Right. Well, that's how you get to know uh, people in the community, spending time, you know, in the parks, out in the streets, getting to know families. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears now and talk about some of the specific athletes that you kind of highlight in the book. And I thought we would start with Bill Russell. I mean, he's just an absolute legend. You devote quite a few pages to him in the book. And he's got a fantastic uh, story, kind of an unlikely story, even. And I'm wondering if we could start Bill Russell's story by having you read a little quote on page 15, because I think you really capture the challenging environment that he was raised in, uh, which just makes his rise to sports glory all the okay. more impressive. Right. Be glad to. Great. So this describes a situation where Bill Russell and his family, they moved from Monroe, Louisiana, to Oakland. And although the housing situations they were living in were somewhat decrepit, because of the war, 
and all the people doubling up and tripling up in housing too because they're working in the war effort uh, in Oakland. The housing situation for the newcomers was crowded and oftentimes squalid, especially for blacks. Deed covenants and other tools of housing discrimination used in other parts of the city limited blacks to seek accommodations primarily in the war housing, West Oakland and the fringes, fringes of North Oakland. Bill Russell, in his autobiography, Go Up for Glory, had this to say about his family's housing after arriving in the city. Quote, We moved into the north section of Oakland, sometimes known affectionately as Landlord's Paradise. It was a regular house with a regular garage, except that eight families were living in the eight rooms, and one family was living in the garage. Pigs and sheep and chickens were raised in the backyard, a rotten, filthy hole, a fire trap with light bulbs hanging off uncoated wires. It was the only place we could find. But Oakland, compared with Louisiana, was paradise gained, unquote. Later, the Russell family uh, living conditions improved. In Russell's words, quote, we finally moved into uh, the project by Cole School. It was an integrated project, integrated to the extent that the whites lived in one section and the Negroes lived in another. We were reasonably happy. We had achieved stature, even by moving into a project, and we remained there until I joined the Celtics, unquote. Wow. So give me an overview of the trajectory that brought Bill Russell from the projects in Oakland to the Hall of Fame and not only uh, sports glory, but also his status as a civil rights icon. Well, I'd have to say that Bill Russell is among the most unlikely sports icons in American history. This kid, when he came to McClyman's High School, was a Six foot two, skinny, very awkward kid, hadn't grown into his body yet, but he wanted to play basketball. And Coach George Poles, the legendary Coach George Poles, cut him from the varsity, sent him down to the junior varsity because he wanted him to, he would play at the junior varsity level. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't play at the varsity level. He would never leave the bench. And he figured that he would improve his skill set at the JV level. So Coach Poles bumps into Bill a few weeks later, and Bill says, Coach, what do I do now? I just got cut from the JVs. So Poles felt sorry for him. So he brought him back to the varsity as the 16th man on a 15-man team. He played occasionally, usually when it was a blowout one way or the other. And... Uh, Coach Poles told me that he remembers when he put Bill in, the crowd would just hoot and holler and put him down because he was so awkward and just fell down a lot and just, 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 he wasn't a basketball player. So that summer, Coach Poles gave him a couple bucks and drove him down to the West Oakland Boys Club and told Bill, I want you to play every day. And Bill, followed the instructions of his coach. The next basketball season, Bill shows up for tryouts, and he's now six foot seven, and he could play. He wasn't great, but he had really, really improved. And um, I'm sure growing five inches in a year probably helped a little bit too. It helped a bit, <laughs> but he was still growing into, yeah. that, into that body. Uh -huh. And uh, Bill Russell later uh, told me that... Uh, when Coach Poles sat the kids down in the, the bleachers and went over the, the rules of basketball, one thing that he latched onto was you could jump up and block shots, which was interesting because in those days, the overriding logic of playing good defense was stay on the ground. You shuffle and you prevent your opponent from getting to the basket, but you you didn't. You never jumped up. It wasn't a vertical game back then. No, 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 no. Very horizontal. Yeah. So when Bill got into games, he started jumping up and blocking shots. And Bill says to this day that the reason he got away with it 
if he had had any other basketball coach, he wouldn't have been allowed to do that. Happened that George Poles was a baseball coach. That's what he knew. He was assigned the basketball team because there was nobody else to coach it. But he didn't really know much about basketball. So Bill Russell laughs and says to this day, one of the reasons I became a great basketball player is because my high school coach didn't know basketball, didn't know what he was doing. So it was, it was fortuitous that in Bill's last game, a former Oil player who had gone on and played basketball at USF, University of San Francisco, named Hal DiGiulio, was in the stands in that game, McClyman's against Oakland High, to scout another player. It happened that day that Bill Russell had the best high school game he ever played. So Julio went back and talked to the USF coach and said, you know, I think we ought to take a flyer on this kid. We have, we have an extra scholarship to give. Why don't, we, why don't we give it to this kid, Bill Russell? So fortune shined down on Bill yeah, Russell. I think it was that the, gamble paid off. Oh, it was the only <laughs> scholarship offer that Bill Russell got. And to this day, Bill Russell says, if it hadn't been for that one scholarship offer, I would have ended up working in the steel foundry wow. in West Oakland, just like my dad. And instead, he ended up being one of the greatest players the NBA has ever seen. Can you give like a quick little summary of his college and uh, Olympic and pro accomplishments? Well, he was, he was the proverbial late bloomer. He got on to, through USF, he got onto a traveling basketball team. And they traveled to Oregon and Washington, and he was playing against much better competition than he, he was in high school. And he really started putting it together, started to blossom. So when he, when he started playing it at USF in his junior year, he started doing things that people had never seen before. And he led USF to an undefeated season. Their undefeated string went to 55 games. They were the first. It wasn't UCLA undefeated season. It was USF. And Bill Russell led them to two NC2A championships and um, was a, a top draft choice of the Boston Celtics and went on to lead them to uh, 11 championships in 13 seasons. No one's ever come close to that accomplishment. He also became the first African-American coach in NBA history. Talk about breaking down a barrier and uh, won the uh, Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama, who told him when he awarded him that Medal of Freedom that if it hadn't been for your exploits and activism, I wouldn't be standing here as President of the United States awarding you this medal. Um, so he, he saw the direct line of a player like Bill Russell breaking down barriers and his becoming President of the United States. Before moving on to the next segment, I should say that we just barely scratched the surface of Bill Russell's history as a leader in the civil rights struggle. We could have easily talked about that for the whole episode, but there's a lot to cover today. So I just wanted to acknowledge Mr. Russell's activism, which Paul covers far more thoroughly in the book. And speaking of activism, let's jump right into the next story. This one's about another McClyman's graduate and how he became kind of a martyr, really, in a very high-profile labor struggle. So tell me about Kurt Flood. Well, Kurt was another uh, unlikely icon. Coach George Poles, who produced 17 Major League players among the kids he coached over the years, he came across uh, nine-year-old Kurt Flood when he was coaching the um, Junior Sweets Shop baseball team in the Oakland Police League. And uh, Kurt Flood was a, a little kid that showed up fast as the wind, but uh, just so, so so tiny. But he was very talented. And, and then at uh, McClyman's High School, as a sophomore, his first year at McClyman's, he out hit... Frank Robinson, who was a senior. So he was he was a talented, talented kid. And just for people who don't know, Frank Robinson also went on to be a Hall of Fame 
baseball star, among many other accomplishments and historic firsts, breaking down various color barriers and uh, first, first black manager in major league history. Yeah, yeah. So Kurt Flood was this pint-sized kid. In fact, in in Kurt Flood's autobiography, he talks about a conversation he had with George Poles uh, when the uh, major league scouts started showing up and watching Flood play. So one day after practice, after all the kids had left the field, Poles sat Flood down and just said, you know, a lot of scouts are looking you over. And you're probably, you've got the talent to be signed, and I think to play Major League Baseball. But you've got some things against you. Your size, for one, and your skin color. And... uh You'll have a hard time making it. But he said, I think that if you really steal yourself and uh, play up to your capabilities, you can play in the major leagues. Because right. this is even, it was after Jackie Robinson, but there was still a lot of discrimination. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, so many of the major league teams had their minor league clubs in the South. Oh, okay. And uh, very odd situation, I think, when you're signing black kids, especially out of the West and North, and you're sending them to minor league clubs in the South where they faced incredible discrimination. You know, they couldn't eat in the restaurants. Uh, they couldn't stay in the hotels with their white teammates. Just, it was a horrible situation. But uh, Kurt got to the major leagues and he became uh, a superstar, center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, but then later in his career, the Cardinals decided to trade him to the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, in those days, you have to understand that baseball, Major League Baseball, had the reserve clause. So you basically were controlled 100% by the team that drafted you and signed you. You had no negotiation power for salary or who you played for or your contract. You were, as Kurt Flood said in his autobiography, you were a slave. It was modern-day slavery. You had no say. So when he was traded to Philadelphia Phillies, he said, I'm not going. I don't want to play in Philadelphia. I want to stay in St. Louis. Well, Cardinals said, no, you got to, you got to go to Philadelphia. So it, it ended up that Kurt sued Major League Baseball and its reserve clause. And that fight went all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, it was a lonely fight. As you can imagine, no current Major League player, teammates of Kurtz or otherwise on other teams, no one wanted to support him because they knew he was going to be blackballed out of baseball, and if they supported him, they would be too. Yeah, I'm sure they privately supported him, but they didn't want to stick their necks out. That's right. So it was a lonely fight, and he basically sacrificed the rest of his baseball career for players' rights to be able to um, negotiate a contract and ultimately decide who they played for, the situation we have today. But he lost the Supreme Court case, right? He so lost, how, did that, how did that end up happening? He, he lost it, but he certainly paved the way. Yeah. In the wake of that loss to the Supreme Court, they uh, instituted the, the Kurt Flood Act, which after a player had played in the major leagues for 10 years, five with the same team, they would be able to negotiate their own contract and play for somebody else. So there was headway made. And like I said, Kurt really was a trailblazer in this effort. Five years later, two white players, and I accentuate the fact, mm -hmm. white players yeah. sued Major League Baseball again, and they won. Right. And it really, it really impacted Kurt. He, he really had hopes to manage mm. in um, the major leagues. He was never allowed to do that. Yeah, I mean, he, it must have been a bitter loss because he he knew he was on the right side of history with that one. Absolutely, yeah. but yeah. You know, he was blackballed out of baseball. Yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, I think a very strong case can be made that Kurt Flood should be in the Hall of Fame, yeah. not only based on his accomplishments on the field, but off the field. But that'll probably never happen because of the stance he took. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you um, a tough question here. I'm wondering 
if you can tell me who you think is the greatest homegrown athlete in all of Oakland's history. And I'm going to throw out there a strong contender. I think most people have heard of him. His name is Ricky Henderson. Can you explain maybe why he's up there or if you think there's other you know, possibilities for, for that title? He's up there at the top of the list, certainly. Um, but he's got competition, let me tell you. Yeah. The list, I mean, Ricky Henderson's probably one of the top 25 players to ever play the game. He's, he's right up there. I, I, I can make a case that he's yeah. in the top 10 of, all, of the greatest players right. ever in baseball. We're not going to go through the list of all his records because you've got it in your book and it's like two pages long. I mean, yeah. he's known for the stolen bases and, you know, the hitting streak and everything like that. But the guy broke like dozens of records. Yeah. I mean, like I said, he'd have competition, <laughs> though, and I'll, and I'll yeah. explain. But... I think Ricky, well, he was a great athlete in high school. He he was a great running back at Oakland Tech High. In fact, uh, he had uh, over 30 um, scholarship offers from major Division One schools because of his running back uh, accomplishments at Oakland Tech. But he let his mother have the final say because he was a great baseball player in high school as well. And uh, she decided that Ricky would play baseball because it would be easier on his body. Yeah. So he followed his mom's wishes, and that's thankfully for us, um, who watched his accomplishments all these years. He chose baseball. I think the the big thing about Ricky in baseball is that he was really a disruptor. I mean, I can't tell you the number of games that I witnessed in the Oakland Coliseum, the House of Thrills, over the years, when uh, Ricky would basically take over a game without even getting a hit. I mean, he got lots of hits, but... There were many games when he he would get a walk, he'd steal second, <laughs> he'd steal third, and then he'd come home, score a run on a ground ball out. Yeah. And he did that all the time, which is one reason that he holds the Major League record for runs scored. I mean, the whole point of baseball is to score runs. Ricky holds the record for runs scored, and I don't know that anybody will ever accomplish that record. Right, because record. how many years was he pro? I mean, it was like over two decades or something. Yeah, it was 20, maybe 21 years, wow. I think. Um, I don't think there's ever been another player like him. He would have competition, however, at the top of that list from Frank Robinson. Mm-hmm. Frank, he was probably one of the top three right fielders in baseball history. Uh, that's how accomplished he was. And another former McClyman student. Former McClyman student. Amazing. He, uh, I think he played baseball in the majors for about 20 years. And for at least 10 of those seasons, he was always in the top 10 um, in slugging percentage, home runs, batting average, runs scored. He was an offensive machine. He was just an incredible player and hard nose. Players that came out of Oakland are knows, known to be guys you don't want to mess with. Uh, when <laughs> yeah. when Frank Robinson went into second base to break up a double play, he broke it up. You knew you were, if you were a second baseman, you were going to get hit. You know, today you see these, these guys slide slide by the second baseman and kind of put their arm out and you know, make a, a gesture <laughs> like, you know, no, they don't want to get hurt. They, they, they don't want to yeah. make contact. Frank Robinson would knock you on your butt. Like a bulldozer. Oh, huh? oh yeah. I mean, he got in several fights in the major leagues because he took you out. Sounds like he was the original beast mode. Oh, yeah, he was. He was. He was a wow. very, very hard-nosed player. Wow. I'd also say that um, up on the top of that, near the top of that list would be Jackie Jensen, mm. who was probably the most all-around versatile athlete to ever come off the playing fields of Oakland. Um, he went to Oakland High, where he was a very accomplished uh, running back, and then he went to Cal, he was an All-American running back at Cal in football. He was an All-American baseball player at Cal. He went on to become the most viable player in the American League in baseball in 1958. He played in the Rose Bowl. He played in the first ever College World Series. Oh. Um, played against Yale and a, and a president named George Bush, the older Bush. And, uh, and he played in a Major League World Series. He's the only athlete ever to accomplish all those. Wow. And his high school sweetie, who ended up becoming his wife, 
was a quite an accomplished athlete herself, right? Olympic diver, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah, Zoanne Olson was a silver gold medal winner. In fact, it was the first diver in Olympic history to win a medal in two consecutive um, Olympic Games. And they were both at Oakland, uh, Tech or Oakland High at the Oakland same time? Oakland High School. Oakland High School at the uh, same time. A few years apart. Okay, gotcha. But uh, they were known as the, the, golden, the golden couple. Yeah, so they, uh, wow. It was an amazing duo. That's the thing. There's a lot of um, surprises in your book. Like, for example, you write about how Oakland's first baseball team was uh, a squad called the Live Oaks, who started playing in 1866, which was quite a bit earlier than I would have expected. Um, when you were doing the research for this book, was there anything that kind of popped out at you as sort of surprising, things that caught you off guard that you didn't know? And I know you've got an encyclopedia and encyclopedic knowledge of Oakland sports history, so that that might be a tall order to call up something that surprised you, but, you know, what what jumped out at you during your research phase on this project? You know, one of the surprises for me was how much I didn't know. I mean, when I started writing the book, it took me four years, pretty much 24-7, just ask my wife, uh, <laughs> and uh, I thought I knew an awful lot about the sports history of Oakland, and it, one of the biggest surprises for me was how much I did not know. For example... Jackie Robinson has always been celebrated as the player who broke uh, the color line in professional baseball. Well, actually, he wasn't. It was a guy named Jimmy Claxton who played for the Oakland Oaks, and he pitched for the Oaks back in 1916. And there's a baseball card to prove it. There's a baseball card. He'd be, yeah. It just happened to be he pitched very briefly, only a few days for the Oaks. But by happenstance, it was... Uh, a time when the Z-Nut baseball card company came around to all the camps in the Pacific Coast League, and Jimmy got his picture taken, and he was the first African-American to be on a, an American baseball card. So Jimmy Claxon was kind of surprised. Also, um, I discovered that an, an Oakland High kid named uh, Al Bowen, uh, he was also known as Lee Gum Hong, was the first Chinese-American baseball player to pitch in the uh, professional ranks, also with the Oakland Oaks in 1932. Wow. So yeah, lots of, lots of firsts for Oakland athletes. Just real quick, for anyone who wants to dig deeper into those last uh, two stories that Paul just mentioned, I've got a older episode of East Bay yesterday that gets into pre-A's uh, baseball. So first half of the 20th century, we cover all kinds of uh, stories of that nature, and you can find it. I'll put it. I'll put a link in the show notes. And also, really interesting. If anyone's ever privileged enough to get a tour of the Pixar campus in Emeryville, they've got kind of a hidden room uh, in that facility with a lot of uh, old school Oakland baseball memorabilia. And there is some uh, a little bit of a shrine to Jimmy Claxton in there as well that I was fortunate enough to see a couple years ago, and I gave a talk on that campus. Yeah, Pixar was the old location of the uh, Oakland Oaks ballpark in Pacific Coast League. Well, I suppose we can't have a talk about Oakland sports history without mentioning Al Davis, a man with a very uh, complex, complicated legacy. Taking, oh, he's taken Oakland through some high highs and some low lows. He's he's laid to rest here in Oakland at the Chapel of the Chimes for anyone who's interesting interested in uh, doing a little pilgrimage to his final resting place. I mean, he's probably still squawking about something, even though he's <laughs> dead and buried. Yeah. So I don't know what what can you say about L. Davis that uh, might I don't know sum up his legacy here in Oakland. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, Oakland sports fans feel like I do. They have a real love hate relationship with L. Davis. Um, he was the individual who actually saved the franchise. Uh, when he became coach in uh, 1963, the previous two years of Oakland's history was pretty grim. The Raiders were the last AFL site to be chosen. And it was only because Baron Hilton, the owner of the Hilton Hotels, he raised a stink about only having one AFL team on the West Coast, his, in Los Angeles, the Chargers, he said, if there's not another team established on the West Coast, I'm out. So at the last minute, AFL uh, leaders scrambled and decided on Oakland. Now, I remember having a conversation with uh, 
some of the reporters from the Tribune, Oakland Tribune at the time, and said, you would have thought we would have known if somebody in Oakland had established a committee to get a team in the AFL. We never heard. And mm. we came across the wire services that uh, Oakland was, just, was the last franchise chosen for AFL. Mm. We wondered what the hell was going on. The very last minute, uh, a group of about uh, nine businessmen in Oakland came together, formed a quick partnership, and they established the Raider franchise. I mean, a more unlikely town for a football professional football franchise couldn't be found in America. We didn't have we didn't have a stadium, and we had a competitive team, San Francisco 49ers, eight miles across the bay. So for the first two years. The Raider franchise, 1960-61, played in uh, Kezar Stadium in San Francisco and uh, then Candlestick Park after it was built. And uh, there were more uh, Seagulls than Raider fans at those games. It was, it was, <laughs> oh, it was pretty bleak. Yeah. And the Raiders lost almost every game they played. Ouch. Along came Al Davis. The owners said, we got to do something or we're dead in the water. So they hired this young, brash coach, who had coached under Sid Gilman, the legendary Sid Gilman, with the Chargers. So he came to Oakland. No one had really never heard of him. In fact, Al Davis had never even played football in college. But he learned at the knee of some great people because he decided he wanted to be a football coach. So he came to Oakland, and all hell broke loose. He demanded that Oakland build a stadium or the Raiders wouldn't be there anymore. So... Oakland threw together a little, it's almost like a tinker toy stadium called Frank Ewell Field. Uh, Frank Ewell was an undertaker in Oakland, which mm. was really a bad omen. And that was like over by where Laney is now, yeah, right? Yeah, Laney parking lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, right up against the uh, 880 freeway. And uh, 1963 came and the franchise, Al Davis turned that franchise around. The Raiders went, I think, 10 and 4 out of nowhere. And the rest is history. The Raiders went on to become one of the great teams um, in football. It was really because of Al Davis. Now, the bad news. <laughs> the bad news. The Al other Davis, shoe's about to drop, huh? Al Davis yeah. was also the person when he became general manager of the, of the franchise that uh, he wasn't, the Raiders weren't making enough money. So he moved the franchise to... Los Angeles, because he was greedy. He wanted more money. Keep in mind that in all those years that Al Davis coached and then was the general manager of the Raiders, the Raiders played before sellouts. I mean, there was not a more rabid I mean, they were in the playoffs of, every year, oh. you know, the Super Bowl numerous times. Yeah. And, and the Raiders made lots of money in Oakland. Yeah, yeah. Don't kid yourself. You know, this whole crime. So this is greed. Yeah, it was, it was out and out greed. Yeah. And so he moved to L.A., and he didn't realize that greed um, in L.A., so he was uh, lured back to Oakland, which, in my own opinion, probably should have never happened because we're still paying the bill for bringing the Raiders back to Oakland, where they were basically losing franchise uh, all those years and after they came back. Um, we're still paying the bill. Yeah, for the stadium uh, upgrades, right? Is yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Mount Davis that we affectionately call. Yeah. Um, the new edifice that was built in the outfield. Um, so. And his uh, son ended up breaking Oakland football fans' hearts again not that long ago. I mean, we don't need to go into that saga, yeah, but I think everyone knows where the, where the Raiders are located yeah. these days, and it's not in Oakland. So there is some incredible <laughs> thrills that yeah. the Raiders brought to Oakland. Um, some of the greatest football rivalries, games played against Pittsburgh Steelers, Kansas City Chiefs, some of the great greatest games in NFL history. So he, he did a lot of great things in Oakland, but he broke a lot of hearts in the process. So I think one of the reasons why this book has such a personal feel to it is because you personally witnessed a lot of these athletes that you're that you write about in, in the book. Um, what are some of your personal highlights for feats of athleticism that you've witnessed here on the fields of Oakland, California? Boy, so many stories. Um, and one of them is, starting in the 1970s, Oakland really became a mecca for point guards in the NBA. 
to the point where I would I would claim that probably the greatest collection of point guards in NBA history came out of Oakland. It started in 1970 at Fremont High School where Lester Connor led Fremont High School to a state championship. And he went on to Oregon State, became an All-American, and was one of the high draft choices uh, in the NBA that year, and went on to about a 15-year career um, in the NBA. He was kind of one of the beginning prototypes of what we could now call a point guard. Uh, played tough defense. He was called Lester the Molester. Um, played tough defense. I don't think that would fly these days. No, it's probably not. It's a different time back then. And... Uh, you know, he distributed the ball, great passer. Um, then he passed the torch, so to speak, to Brian Shaw out of Bishop O'Dowd High School uh, up on the hill. And uh, he was a really proficient point guard and played for three NBA champion Laker teams in 2000, 2001, 2002. Then he handed the torch off to a guy named Gary Payton, probably one of the very best point guards ever to play the game in the NBA. The only point guard to ever win a Defensive Player of the Year award in the NBA. Incredible. Tough. Had a lot of great success defending Michael Jordan, as a matter of fact. Not, not too many can make that claim. Great point guard. He, in turn, handed off the torch to Jason Kidd, another incredible player. I watched Jason play as I did Gary Payton. Watched him play in high school and couldn't believe what I was seeing. Even like in the 10th grade, he was doing stuff, passes between his legs, behind his back, blind passes over his shoulders. Unbelievable player. And then Jason handed off the torch to Damian Lillard, who was just killing it in the NBA. He's injured right now, but he's had an incredible run the last eight years. Uh, he's He's recognized as one of the very top NBA point guards currently. And uh, so now we're, we're kind of waiting around and yeah. to see who the next one is. I was wondering about that because this book originally was published in 2013. And so some of the superstars, local superstars that kind of end the book are people like Damon Lillard, Marshawn Lynch, uh, Andre Ward, the great boxer. Since that generation of guys who kind of came up in the in the aughts and the early you know 2010s, have there been new stars coming out of Oakland? And, and where do you see, you know, the future stars of Oakland coming from? Yeah, I think um, we're not producing the numbers that we used to, but we're still producing a lot of great athletes. Um, there's There's been a lot of contributing factors to that slowdown. Well, I wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier in the interview, which is Prop 13. Um, <laughs> Prop 13 had a lot of consequences uh, on the state of California. And um, I'm wondering if you could expand on what you mentioned earlier a little bit in terms of how Prop 13 affected the parks in Oakland, you know, recreation in Oakland, and, you know, this pipeline of great athletes that you describe in the book. It, it was devastating. It just cut the, the financial legs out of municipalities, counties, um, the taxes that, property taxes that were accumulated prior to Prop 13, really was the economic engine for a lot of government. That was really stripped pretty bare by Prop 13. One year after Prop 13 was passed, the budget of the Parks and Recreation was uh, diminished by $10 million. Just like that. Boom. And I, I, I make the claim that Parks and Recreation Department has never recovered from that blow. Right. I mean, if you go around to some of the parks and especially in the flatlands in Oakland now, I mean, they're in a sorry state. They are, generally. So that really had a crippling impact. I would also have to say that uh, the changes in our educational system has really uh, shut down in a major way the pipeline to the pros for Oakland. We've seen this proliferation of charter schools mm. over the last decade in Oakland, most of which do not have athletic programs or not much of not much of athletic programs. So that's really changed the landscape. I mean, we have 
so many charter schools in Oakland. I think we actually might, I'm not sure, but I think we might have more charter schools now than we have public schools. So that has really impacted us as well. So, again, the the athletes are still coming, but just not in the numbers we once once produced. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this book is currently out of print. So do you have any plans for an updated version or a sequel or anything like that? Are you working on anything that might uh, bring the uh, Oakland legacy that you've been documenting up to the present day? Yeah, I'm feeling a lot of, I've been feeling a lot of heat the last year or so. People are really uh, saying I need to update the book. I need to, or produce another book. Um, and, you know, I, I hear them. I mean, because they're not the ones that have to put all the work in to accomplish that. It's easy for them to say, but I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I might want to do that. But, but I, you know, I, I just have to tell you that, as you know, this book was really didn't focus that much on Oakland's legacy vis-a-vis the, its professional teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about the athletes that came off the streets of Oakland, the neighborhoods, off the playgrounds, who made it. Big, yeah, in, yeah. In the professional, league. I should say we've been focusing mostly on you know baseball, football, it's a little bit of basketball in this interview. But you get into Olympic athletes, you know, all kinds of sports, uh, and a lot of intramural and high school athletes as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, somebody I didn't mention that uh, was an amazing athlete coming out of Oakland was Don Budge. He right. was the first Grand Slam winner in tennis history, right. um, and he was like a working class kid, right? Yeah, from North this was. Tennis back in those days, the 30s and 40s, it was a country club sport for the rich. Yeah. And there's this kid that learned his tennis on the gravel courts of Bushrod Park. I mean, Unbelievable. pretty humble. I That's mean, his, his, his parents ran a laundry in yeah. Oakland. And, right. uh, you know, he was using used tennis rackets. And, and this, kid ro- this kid rose to become the greatest tennis player in the world. But the point I was going to make is there's been a lot of steam taken out of me over the last three or four years with the move out of town of our professional sports teams. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's rather ironic that you have this town with this incredible sports legacies, one of the greatest in America. And great fans. And rabid great fans. And teams are leaving. Sports has changed a great deal in the last 25 years. So many of our professional teams are owned and operated by billionaires. Right. The athletes. Right. We, we call the uh, rich guys in Russia oligarchs. I think that uh, you know term oh. could be applied to most of the owners of professional sports teams as well. Absolutely. You're right. <laughs> You're right on target. And we have athletes that I don't know about you, but I have a hard time identifying with multimillionaires. Um, yeah. it's, it's just the whole thing has been turned on its head. Mm-hmm. And so first we lose the Raiders even though they got great support. You know, it's all about more money. It's all about greed. It's yeah. it's almost like it's it's corporate sports now. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my friends, working class folks, really can't afford season tickets anymore. Or even you a know? ticket to a single game. Well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've got friends who uh, are diehard Warriors fans, oh. and they're not going to the Chase Center because they can't drop 200 bucks to see a basketball game no. for nosebleed seats, you know? And then, you know, the Warriors, I mean, talk about a nonsensical move. Here you have arena that's still in pretty good shape. It was renovated for the previous Warrior owners and uh, sellouts, most of their history in Oakland. You know, the Warriors weren't really supported very well at the Cow Palace or in Mm -hmm. the arena in San Francisco, so they moved to Oakland uh, to better their possibilities. And uh, they got the support over all those years with mostly mediocre teams. As soon as they get good, what do they do? The billionaire owners build a new arena seven miles away across the bay. Not even easy to get to on BART. No. I mean, <laughs> here you had a good, a good arena, rabid yeah. fans. You had some of the greatest sports parking of any stadium in America. Yeah. You had BART and Major Freeway right yeah. next door. And yet the owners decided to spend over a billion dollars... <laughs> to build a new arena, seven miles. Mm. Talk about sports. Not about it's not about fans anymore. Yeah, it's about corporate yeah. money. That's yeah. all it is. And now the A's, we're on the brink of possibly losing the A's. You know, 
two years ago, the A's were talking about building a new stadium. Now right, the whole rooted in Oakland campaign. Yeah. You know, I love the Coliseum. It's the house of thrills. I still love to go watch a game there, but yeah. okay, I get it. It's old. It's musty. You want to build a new stadium? Fine. But two years ago, we were talking about a $1 billion baseball stadium. Two years later, we're, why are we talking about a $12 billion real estate venture that happens to include a little baseball stadium as part of it? Yeah. What, what happened here? This is a whole different ballgame, excuse the pun. Um, I don't know. It's just taking the wind out of my sails. Yeah. I, I just have to say that uh, our experience in Oakland, you know, maybe it's time, and this will be heresy to many of my friends who are sports fans, like myself, but maybe it's time that a working class town like Oakland stops being involved with multi-billionaire owners and multi-millionaire athletes. It, yeah. it doesn't equate anymore. You know, we keep getting, we keep losing money on this deal. And talk about breaking hearts. I mean, it wasn't last year I had this heartbreaking meeting with his friends I met on the street in downtown Oakland. He's a, a great chef here in Oakland. And, he, and we had just gotten word that the Raiders were probably going to move. And we, we got to talking about that. And uh, he said, you know, my dad took me to Raider games when I was a little kid. He was a Raiders fan. I grew up a Raider fan. And now my little kids, I think he was like eight or nine years old, he's a Raider fan. And we go to Raider games. And recently when he heard that the Raiders were going to move away. He came to me crying, and he couldn't understand. And he's telling me this story, and there's there's a tear running down his cheek. Yeah. You know, this is this is how deeply ingrained professional sports teams uh, become for us. And you know, quite frankly, I'm not sure I understand the commitment we make to pro teams. I mean, you consider that so many of the team owners aren't from here, they don't live here, most of the athletes aren't from here, um, don't live here. When the season's over, they go back to where they're from. Yet, we give them so much of our heart and soul and root for them. You know, oh yeah, Oakland beat San Francisco or Oakland beat Kansas City. Well, not really. Mm. The team really doesn't have much to do with Oakland mm. except they happen to play here. But the players, the owners, so many of the franchise, they're not from here. Yeah. So why do we get so wrapped up in professional teams, especially when they seem to enjoy robbing us blind? <laughs> I mean, public money that we could be using to deal with the homeless and so on. You know what it's going to cost us if we support this $12 billion stadium and real estate deal for the A's at uh, Howard Terminal? A lot of public money is going to go into that development. Yeah. And my fear, and don't get me wrong, I want to, my kids grew up with the A's, they love the A's, and I do too. But at what cost? Yeah. Yeah. At what cost? Well, I wish we could end this interview on a happy note, but I feel like, uh, you know, the future, the story. future, well, at least we still got the roots. I'll put it that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, we got the Oakland roots. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping and praying. Yeah. Really. For a WNBA team. Yeah. To come to Oakland. Right. That would be a wonderful thing. And I would encourage listeners to, given what I've just said about our, our experience with pro teams, brought us a lot of thrills. But a lot of heartbreak and a lot of debt. Um, go check out high school games mm -hmm. in the town. Yeah. Junior college. Go watch a Laney football game. It's a great experience. Check out University of California, Berkeley, or St. Mary's. Those are both two schools yeah. that started in Oakland. They have deep roots here. Let, let, let's, let's support those endeavors. Exactly. You might just see the next uh, up-and-coming... Oakland superstar, and uh, you're probably not going to have to drop a couple hundred bucks on tickets and you parking will. and all that. And you so. won't have your heart. You won't have your heart <laughs> yeah, broken. Exactly. So. Well, Paul, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to have you on East Bay yesterday. The book is Home Field Advantage: The City That Changed the Face of Sports, all about 
Oakland, and uh, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're a sports fan, a history fan, or just an Oakland resident who wants to know more about some of the uh, incredible people that have come from this wonderful little town, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to come see me in person, I'll be doing a talk on April 6th at the Berkeley City Club about what else? Berkeley history. Tickets are free, but you've got an RSVP. Uh, you can find links to that. Uh, and my newsletter where I announce all my events and boat tours and things of that nature at eastbayyesterday.com. While you're there, hey, maybe think about hitting that donate link and becoming a supporter of the show. I really appreciate all of you who are already signed up for my Patreon. I truly could not do this without you. Uh, and if you can't afford to donate, maybe help spread the word about this show. Uh, if, if you like this show, throw it up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Tag me. That helps a lot. Uh, all my marketing is basically word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell your family, uh, show your grandma how to listen to podcasts, and subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on her phone. Every little bit helps. Uh, the music for this episode came from local producer Justin Lee. And that's about it. Thanks for listening.